You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. And welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week. And here with me are Lauren Horsch, Danielle Shemtob, Colin Campbell, Will Doran, and Andy Spey. Um, a lot going on this week. Uh, Dwayne Hall was back in the news. Um, Governor Roy Cooper is talking about what he wants in the upcoming budget in the short session. Uh, and a candidate makes uh, some interesting comments about race uh, that draw a backlash. Um, but first, Will, let's start with the uh, state treasurer's office, uh, which threw 600 people off of the state health plan uh, this week. Uh, so why did that happen, and uh, what's been the response? Yeah, the, uh, the treasurer's office has been doing an audit um, that uh, Dale Falwell started basically as soon as he became treasurer in 2017. It was just a couple months into office. He decided that the health plan needed to be audited, and something he told me on Wednesday, which I'd never realized before, is apparently we had never done an audit of the state health plan before. Uh, you know, a lot of private companies do this sort of thing every year. North Carolina, he said, had never done this, so we wanted to just kind of look into it and see, you know, if there's anyone on the plan who didn't deserve to be. Um, you know, this is something that is subsidized by the taxpayers, has uh, around 730,000 people on it. That includes state employees, retired state employees who don't yet qualify for, you know, Medicaid, um, state legislators, you know, all sorts of university employees and all of their dependents. And they were looking into it and they found uh, 601 people who were on there who were listed as dependents um, who they ended up throwing off the plan. Um, and that happened for a couple reasons. Uh, some of them, uh, basically, when contacted, admitted, yeah, I have no reason to be on the health plan. Uh, you got me. Um, and I think a lot of those people were... Uh, I hope they really said, you got me. <laughs> I really, I'm picturing this uh, sort of... I would have gotten it way worth it if it wasn't that pesky Dale Falwell. <laughs> well, you know, they probably figured, well, you know, I've been pretty, getting pretty good health care for the past however many years, you know, that I probably shouldn't have deserved. So uh, I guess I won't fight it too much now that I'm caught. I don't know the exact circumstances. Uh, probably, I think, a lot of people who were uh, previously married to a state employee and then got divorced but didn't leave the health coverage. Um, and then there were also some other people uh, who were just automatically removed uh, because whoever uh, had enrolled them as a dependent didn't send in any information to basically prove that they were legitimate. Um, and so in some cases, maybe that is, you know, the same kind of situation, uh, you know, an ex-spouse who isn't legitimate, the person just didn't bother setting in the paperwork. Or who knows, uh, maybe it could just be people who uh, were very for forgetful uh, or, uh, you know, missed it somehow. Um, and so people can appeal and, you know, we'll see. Uh, heard, I heard from the State Employees Association that there's been at least one person who is asking them for help in appealing, but one out of 601 isn't too many. And 600 out of 730,000 is a very small number. I mean, that's a fraction of 1% of people. So, um, they made a, uh, a lot of people have to provide information to do this audit, right? Right. They, they uh, asked for, what, everyone to provide information about their dependents? Uh, yeah, anyone who has a dependent. And I think 
maybe around uh, one in every five or six people on the health plan is a dependent, is not someone who is, you know, directly um, a beneficiary. So, yeah, there were over 100,000, maybe 150,000 dependents on it. Um, and then, you know, 600 of them kicked off. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, obviously not going to be a huge cost savings for the state in the long run, but it's kind of one of those things where it's, you know, the thought that counts, uh, you know, people who don't need to be on it shouldn't be on it, uh, especially since it is paid for by us taxpayers. And some of the plans can actually get pretty expensive. Um, up until earlier this year, actually, there you were able to get some plans for free. The free plans now cost like $25 a month or something like that, but they're still pretty cheap. Um, but some of the family plans can get uh, to above $700 a month if you've got a large family who's all enrolled, uh, you know, through through one person. So, uh, you know, kicking off people who don't deserve to be on there, uh, you know, theoretically will help, uh, you know, drive down costs even if just by a little bit. And, uh the plan in general is underfunded by about $33 billion uh, because, you know, people are living longer and prescription drugs just keep getting more expensive. So in the future, we're looking at a lot of cost short runs, and uh, it's been a big big priority of Fallwells to try and cut some costs before we run into those uh, future budget issues. All right. Um, Lauren, uh, there was some news this week on uh, Dwayne Hall. Uh, actually, a few things. So the uh, opponent, uh, Allison Dahl, started uh, um, attacking him over the sexual harassment, sexual misconduct claims against him. Uh, and uh, he's also um, really started to campaign. Um, we're seeing robocalls and yard signs and mailers. Uh, but then uh, you also wrote about a development uh, in which he has actually resigned from one of his positions. Obviously, there's a lot of people asking him to resign, um, including you wrote that the the Young Democrats group in North Carolina has formally asked him to resign. Um, but he's not resigning from his legislative job, his his uh, job and his position in the state house. So what is he quitting? Yeah, so he very quietly resigned from his chairmanship of the uh, Courts Commission, which is just a group of lawyers, uh, judges, and other stakeholders in the court system that usually get together, you know, it, it'll depend on who the chairperson is, but it had recently ramped up in, you know, the past couple of years as they were working on juvenile justice reform. And he had been in point, appointed by uh, Governor Cooper, I do believe, last October or October 2017, um, to be the chair of this uh, committee, and he was very excited about it. Um, and that was one of the questions, you know, myself and Colin had for uh, the governor's office, you know, when all this broke out. You know, what happens to that chairmanship? Because it is appointed by the governor, um, and there was no super clear language as to how, you know, would Hall be removed from that position? Would he have to resign? And he did ultimately resign, um, and that actually happened on March 12th. So it was, you know, it took almost a month for it to kind of get out there. And we finally saw the resignation letter, which is just one sentence long, saying, I resign effective immediately. And they appointed uh, his colleague in Wake County, uh, Joe John, um, who is a former judge at multiple levels. So he will be the new courts commission uh, chairman. And Hall has said that, you know, he doesn't want to resign partly because he feels like that would be like uh, admitting 
to this, and he says it's not true. He says he's never sexually uh, harassed anyone, uh, although he's admitted to having uh, what he said was an inappropriate kiss with uh, a party, a Democratic Party official. But um, so, any do we have any idea um, why he um, chose to resign from this position? No, he's been kind of silent. I know he's been talking to some reporters, but mostly off the record at this point, just kind of telling them, you know, what are his plans, what he's been doing for his election. And, I mean, we found out that, you know, he's been door knocking as well as, you know, sending out mailers and those robocalls. But there's really no, you know, no one really knows at this point. And, I mean, he hadn't even been seen in the building until I think I ran into him last week at some point. And just randomly in the General Assembly. Um, so he hasn't been going to committee meetings or anything like that. So it's just been silent. And I think right now he might just be focusing on the campaign for all we know. So. Okay. Um, and uh, in the wake elections, we did have a development today um, that several of the districts, not including halls, but uh, a number of the districts um, had been challenged uh, in Wake County. Uh, these are state house districts, and uh, judge, a three-judge panel handed down a ruling just today that said that uh, although they think that the challengers of the districts did have a likelihood that they were going to succeed, um, they are not going to block uh, the elections uh, from happening as the challengers wanted. And so that lawsuit will go on, but the elections will go on as well. Um, and uh, Colin, you've been writing about how the a number of candidates in the uh, elections coming up are facing residency challenges. This is sort of the latest way to attack a candidate uh, if you uh, or their opponent is basically say they don't live where they say they live, and so they're not eligible to run. And if you, I guess, get if you get lucky, you uh, could knock them out without ever having to win an election. Yeah, there have been um, at least a dozen or so of these filed across the states, and they've uh, tackled candidates from both parties, including incumbents. Uh, and the, the way they typically go is a lot of them are based on an effort by a uh, nonprofit uh, advocacy group. Well, we don't know a whole lot about their funding and who's behind them uh, called Real Facts NC. They went and mailed uh, postcards to, uh, I think, candidates on both sides of the aisle, but mo mostly where we're looking at targeting Republicans uh, to see if mail returned as undeliverable from the address at which someone had registered to run for office. Um, and that resulted in somebody else, uh, then in the resident of the, the various counties, filing a, a petition saying, uh, this person's not actually getting mail at this address, so do they really live there? Uh, and then there's this whole hearing process set up where someone has to prove where they live. So uh, one example of that is Representative Justin Burr from Stanley County was the target of one of these because uh, mail came back as undeliverable. He said, no, that's wrong. I, I do live at that address. I just get my mail in a post office box. And there's not actually mail delivery service uh, to the street where I'd been living. Um, so he had to, I think, show up into a hearing and produce his utility bills, uh, uh, t t take some questions about why his fiance lives in Raleigh and he's getting married in Raleigh versus in Stanley County. Uh, ultimately, uh, the challenge was dismissed as there not being enough evidence to indicate that he doesn't actually live where he says he lives. Um, and that's been the case in several of the other ones uh, have been dismissed. I think just today, a challenge against uh, former Senator Bob Rucho, who has moved to a different county to run for office again in a, a district in Iredell and Yadkin counties was dismissed. So Rucho is uh, good to go and run. Uh, a couple others I wrote and about that kind of In that race, you got uh, a couple people who are yeah, moving yeah. to, uh, to, to take up residence in a, in a funeral home. Yeah, in the, the funeral home candidates in that district. For some reason, I don't think he was, he was a subject of a challenge. I'm um, kind of surprised there wasn't one. In, in that particular instance, because that was sort of uh, the subject of news stories. Uh, there's some other interesting ones. Um, 
that I wrote about, uh, there's a Democrat running for House in Mecklenburg County, um, and his situation was that he registered to vote for what's essentially his new address. He was in the process of moving, and um, the question was whether he had moved in time for his registration change. He argued he had a house under contract. He was going to be a resident of that district uh, soon enough so he could register at that address. Uh, but some opponents of him uh, evidently hired a private investigator to follow him around and see uh, where this guy was sleeping at night, whether it was in the old house or the new house, um, and argued that he had uh, re-registered his registration too soon and therefore was ineligible to run in that district, which this is a high stakes thing in this district because this is one of the competitive districts in Mecklenburg County. Uh, he's the only Democrat running against Republican Representative Andy Doolin. Uh, if he gets knocked out of that race, then Andy Doolin's effectively unopposed and wins automatically, which puts another seat in uh, Republican hands that might otherwise uh, be in limbo, uh, depending on how close this year's election is. So there's a big deal there. Uh, another case in Mecklenburg involving a young woman by the name of Nora Trotman, who uh, ran, is running as a Republican against State Senator Jeff Jackson. Uh, her deal was that uh, she hadn't been officially registered as a Republican Party member for a certain period of time prior to her candidate filing, uh, but the Republicans are backing her and saying that because she's been a dues-paying member of a young Republicans group for quite some time, that should count as party membership. So there are all these sort of interesting questions to be resolved in this, but it's definitely uh, trying to knock your opponent out on a technicality um, in a way that uh, we haven't seen nearly this many challenges uh, done in the past. And uh, as of this week, I think only one successful challenge, there's one up in northeastern North Carolina. We had a story from one of the news outlets up there in uh, The Insider this week uh, where a candidate uh, evidently lived in a different county and the uh, Board of Elections there uh, ruled against him and now he, he's off the ballot. But for the most part, these things have been dismissed. And um, But I think still maybe sort of an effective campaign technique because if you uh, sort of cast some aspersions about someone's honesty about where they even live, then that may hurt their candidacy even if they're not actually knocked off the ballot. I was trying to look to see whether um, that residency challenge against Ben Clark had been uh, successful or not, but I couldn't find anything. They're, I was just they're meeting just April 16th oh. today. Yeah, there were some press releases back and forth um, between him and his opponent within the last week, including, Lauren, you saw this, the, the a, tweet a, from Ben Clark. Yeah, uh, Senator Ben Clark from uh, Hope County had tweeted out a photo of the house he's living in of just a pink room with a piece of mail on the couch he was like, I got mail at my residence today, and it's the, like, residency challenge and whatnot. But, yeah, yeah. so that's that's. I promise thing. I live here because here's the mail I just got, and it's sitting on my couch. It looks like a couch that someone would sit on and live in. Is, is that in his new house or his, his old house? Because that was an issue where he they had uh, basically carved out a piece of the district to capture his, his new home well, or his second his home, second I home. think. Yeah, yeah. they, yeah. they yeah. carved out the second home. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so he's having to make the case that – he didn't actually move to the new house. He's still in the old house gotcha. because the district didn't end up changing didn't in a way to help it. help him out to move to that new house. Right. Okay. All right. So we'll be seeing a lot more of these if some of them ends up successful. But it sounds like more likely than more of them than not are um, fizzling out. Um, one candidate who is running uh, down in Wilmington is Gary Shipman. And uh, Andy, tell us about uh, Gary Shipman and what he had to say at a re- in a recent speech. Um, that uh, drew some backlash. Gary Shipman is running. He's hoping to be the Democratic candidate uh, that will face Holly Grange in House District 20, uh, which Democrats said this week they think they can they can flip. 
Uh, and he's one of three Democrats in the primary. The others are, I can't remember, John Bauer and Leslie Cohen. That's their names. Um, and so recently they were invited to a uh, what looks like a picnic forum in Wilmington. Uh, this was April 8th, so Sunday. And they were all asked about what they would do to uh, encourage diversity across North Carolina, but also w- what would they do to um, – I'm trying to remember the exact words they use. I think they said enthuse the African-American uh, base of voters. Uh, Ms. Cohen, uh, who's an artist, said that uh, she her quote was something along the lines of, well, invite me into your communities. I want to hear uh, how I can help. Shipman, uh, who's an attorney out there, uh, said that he does not need to be invited into the African-American community because he is, quote, already a member of the African-American community, end quote. And so someone sent us a video of him saying this uh, because they thought it might be controversial, and uh, we thought it was interesting at the very least. And so we reached out to uh, Shipman and through email, and he responded with a lengthy defense uh, where he doubled down on his claim that he's a member of the black community. And he said that... Uh, He's been to... And he didn't try to say he was black. He, no. He's, he is he, white. Ne- he said he yeah. never claimed to be black. Right. He didn't mention any black family members. He didn't say anything about, uh, you know, having family relationships mm-hmm. uh, in the black community. But he said his, his overall point was that he's heavily involved uh, in the black community and has many black friends. And uh, But the way he said it... Uh, sort of made it sound even worse. He said he had been to, quote, many a fish fry, uh, and that uh, his language was just, his word choice uh, was interesting. And so uh, since we wrote that story, which I think was Wednesday, was when it went online, um, we've seen a lot of varied responses. Some saying this is absurd, and wow, I can't believe someone would say that to others saying things like, well, I, I sort of see his point, but uh, his poorly, poorly executed point. Um, and so that's where we are. Today, uh, he was quoted in the Wilmington Star News as saying that he's getting calls from uh, people calling him uh, names um, and that it, it's brought him to tears. And so uh, it, it ought to be interesting to just see how all this unfolds since that's a uh, three-person race, and um, I haven't looked at the campaign finance reports, but he is a very successful attorney down there, and um, the fact that, you know, Republicans have a tracker on him who is getting these videos and leaking it shows they must uh, think something of him, you know, that that he might be a threat uh, to some degree, but uh, that's that was uh, the latest from the coast, um, at least in that district. Holly Grange, uh, for uh, I should say, never came out with a statement about any of it. And it seemed like most of his rival candidates didn't want to have anything to do with it. Right. Uh, Some Co- said, oh, I'd rather talk about water pollution. Right. Um, uh, Cohen said she was surprised by his comments, but didn't want to go any further than that. And then John Bauer, I don't think, has said anything. He didn't want to comment at all. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it for election uh, coverage this week. Um, But there are a few things going into the upcoming short session um, that are of interest uh, that developed this week. Um, Will, you wrote about uh, Governor Cooper's request for money to deal with Gen X and other pollutants. 
Um, this is sort of a, a little bit of a preview of his uh, budget request, I guess. So what is he asking for? He is asking for $14.5 million uh, to deal with uh, various angles on fighting Gen X and other emerging contaminants like that with uh, super difficult to remember names like PFAS and PFOAs and Gen X is just the easiest one to remember and uh, the one that gets a lot of the headlines. Uh, but there's a lot out there and we're just starting to learn about these in the state and um, I, this has been going on since really October. The state figured out that we had all this stuff in the water basically in around summer of 2017 and then that fall around October legislature approved a small amount of money to start studying it. Cooper at the time had asked for a lot more money. They didn't give it to him. And then in January, uh, legislature came back and decided, you know what, maybe Cooper was right. Maybe we do need to give him this two or three million dollars that he wants. Um, and so that passed the House unanimously, but the Senate shot it down and wouldn't, uh, wouldn't even let it come up for a vote uh, before replacing it with their own version that uh, basically gave very, very little of uh, what Cooper had asked for. Um, and then that never went anywhere, so no one got any money. Um, and now, fast forward, the legislature will be coming back um, about a month from now, on May 18th, I believe, is when the short session starts. And um, there will be several budget requests among, you know, along all sorts of different lines. Uh, this was, I think, the first one that Cooper's office has put out. And he said that, you know, basically the reason why we're seeing this so early is because it's a incredibly high priority of his. Uh, he was highly critical of the legislature back in February when they failed to pass anything about Gen X then, and uh, now he's asking for even more money. Instead of 2 or $3 million, we're seeing $14.5 million. Um, some of that, about 4 or $5 million, would be just kind of one-time only, upgrade some equipment, buy some new equipment, things like that. And then the other $10 million would be to hire around 50 new employees uh, for the state. Most of them would be in DEQ. They'd be the people who, you know, go out into the field, uh, you know, into our lakes and rivers to take water samples and uh, find them and bring them back to the labs. And then, you know, some people who would be then testing those samples in the labs, coming up with medical advisories, health warnings, things like that. Um, so a couple different angles uh, on the, you know, the types of employees that they need uh, there. We'll this see. comes as, you've, as the department has really been cut. Over yes, the years. Um, this doesn't even make up for the cuts that DEQ has faced since 2013, according to Cooper's office. He said that they've lost 77 people in the last five years. And so he's only asking for around 45 people in DEQ and maybe a half dozen people in Department of Health and Human Services. So this doesn't even, uh, you know, it barely gets back to, to half of the cuts that they've seen in the last five years. Um, and you know, also in those last five years, we've had new issues crop up like Gen X that we didn't even know existed. Um, so um, a lot of environmental groups think that, you know, we're just really behind the ball on this, that we need to get going. Um, I think that it'll probably be easier said than done when the legislature gets to it. Um, clearly, we've already seen some differences opinion on even much smaller, uh, you know, funding numbers. And uh, if you look at the budget, uh, Legislators are actually expecting to cut DEQ's budget further next year. Uh, they're planning to cut it by $1 million, not increase it by $14 million. So, um, so yeah, this is definitely a big ask, um, and it kind of puts some of the legislators on the spot. Uh, as Andy uh, was noting earlier, some of the kind of close districts in the 2018 elections are in the Wilmington area, which is where 
you know, it's kind of ground zero for the Gen X concerns. That's where, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is flown into, and into the, that's the biggest uh, city in the area. So, um, yeah, there's some political considerations, and you've seen a lot of the, the Wilmington area Republicans kind of try to take a lead on this in the House um, and somewhat in the Senate, um, but obviously have not been able to get anywhere. So, All right. Uh, and, Lauren, you wrote about a uh, um, committee basically uh, uh, wanting to have some action in, I believe, in the short session on um, dealing with rape kits. Yeah. So we actually had members of the uh, Department of Justice um, as well as the State Crime Lab come before um, a joint committee on justice and public safety yesterday to kind of brief them on the statewide rape kit backlog, which is about 15,000 kits, or that was, you know, the total we had in the beginning of March. And this inventory um, comes from the state, the 2017 state budget. So this was part of that budget bill where it directed the state crime lab to kind of look into all of this and see how many rape kits were left untested in the shelves of, you know, your local sheriff's department, your local police department, that sort of thing. So what they did at this JPS committee meeting, um, they explained, you know, what they want to do to help make sure that this backlog never happens again and then test any of the um, untested kits. So there's there's a couple things they want to do. And one is they want to start a statewide tracking system. Um, and and you, they, they have this talking point, you know, we can track any package from Amazon or any other package we order online. So it'll essentially work like that, except they're going to look at a system out of Idaho. And Idaho has already given um, the state permission to use their system for free, which saves, you know, about $2 million or less because uh, some systems cost about $2 million for this tracking software. Um, and that would give each rape kit its own um, sort of unique, no, it would be unique. It wouldn't be sort of unique. It would be unique um, number. It wouldn't be a barcode. It would just be a set of numbers um, that you could just go into this website, type it in, and anyone from law enforcement um, to the victim to a lab technician would be able to type that number in update if there's any results, if there's been a hit in CODIS, um, and then the victim can go in and see, oh, this is where my kit is, you know, what's next, do I have to call my investigator, that sort of thing. Um, and all in all, the tracking system, you know, is going to cost about $231,000, um, and that's including reoccurring and non-reoccurring funds. So that's just because we have to customize it to North Carolina. Um, and on top of that, we also are looking at hiring uh, two contractor labs, one in Virginia, one in Utah, which um, will test some of these kits. And that could cost upwards of $10 million, $10.6 million. Um, and it, we're not sure if we're going to need to allocate all that money um, because another part of this bill um, that, you know, the, the JPS committee voted on or this draft legislation they voted on, um, they're also creating a committee of um, – experts, you know, which could include lawmakers, uh, law enforcement officials, uh, victim advocates, um, to discuss, you know, which of these kits are we going to test? You know, there's 15,000 of them. Some women don't want their kits to be tested. And so, you know, we might not test them because they don't want to go to court. They just want to leave them be. So that committee is really going to be in charge of deciding what happens with those kits. And, you know, each kit is different because, each, you know, sexual assault is a different case. So there's a lot of intricacies that go in with all of this. Um, so that's kind of where it stands right now. There are already testing some of the kits um, because the DOJ actually had some money 
um, that they were able to allocate to it this year. So they've tested over 200 kits from eight uh, North Carolina agencies. And that was just because they wanted to see what this process of sending these kits to a lab would be like, because the state crime lab only has the ability of testing newer cases. So any uh, kit that comes in that's less than a year old, they could test. But those that are, you know, five, ten however many years old, they would have to send out to those contracting labs. And those labs can only handle 50 uh, kits a month. So that's kind of where we stand on that. Danielle, you've done some reporting on this backlog, too. Um, and the backlog kind of gets put into different categories. W w what are some of the reasons that these kits pile up on the shelves and don't get tested? Yeah, there's a there's a couple reasons, you know, some which advocates are drawing concern to, some which, you know, like you mentioned, uh, will make sense. So one is the victim decided to be anonymous, didn't want to press charges. And um, another is that they they're the victim's claim, and this is the word, um, is quote was found to be quote unquote unfounded. Um, so, you know, I've been told that that can mean a lot of different things. There are definitely advocates that are concerned about that, um, but there are, you know, you can't mean that they who, didn't believe them. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I mean, th that's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. They they definitely have different explanations. I mean, you know, it's it's hard because like psychologically, when you go through trauma, you can't always recall a story in a linear fashion or like even at all. Sometimes people block out traumatic experiences. So it's kind of hard to say what would make um, a law enforcement officer believe one person over another, in, especially with like inconsistencies in stories. Um, I think that the other category that a lot of people have been drawing concern to is literally just called other. So, you know, I have no idea why mm -hmm. they weren't tested. Um, and that was over half of them. It's about 7,000 of them. So um, that was another category that the advocates were wanting answers on as well. And this is a lot, right? At least compared to other states. We don't, yes. we, we have few, more than other, has been more than most states. Uh, Texas at one point had more, I believe, but as of now, we have the highest backlog that's been counted. There are states that haven't counted it, so we can't be sure, but it's definitely up there. I remember there was a report a few years ago about uh, Charlotte and how they were especially bad in, the, in, in Charlotte with having just an absurd amount of untested kits there. Yeah, Charlotte got a grant um, to test a lot of those, but they have their own lab where they do a lot of the testing. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. And I think we'll come back. Uh, we'll take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week in just a minute. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school. But I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week. 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 Hot. And we're back with Domecast, and it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we pick this week's most important person, place, thing, object. Uh, last week, I was gone for a week, and you guys picked an onion. 
so I don't know if we're going to see a repeat of that, but uh, we'll go now to Lauren Horsch, who's responsible for that, and uh, and see who uh, her pick this week is. Lauren, who's your headliner of the week? I have bad news, Jordan. <laughs> Just kidding. The Onion did reappear, but I have a real headliner this week. Um, so my headliner is uh, former Senator Fletcher Hartzell, who um, – Appeared in a committee meeting. It was the Program Evaluation Division Oversight meeting earlier this week. He was the former uh, chairman of that meeting, but many of you know uh, Senator Hartzell from. In, he was in. He was charged with fraud in September 26 and was recently uh, released from jail. He only served a couple of months. I think July through March, um, and so he was back. And so uh, they you know, applauded him for returning. Um, and so it was just, it was interesting to see him there. I think Colin went over and f- over, over to the meeting and flagged him down and just tried to see if, you know, he was coming back as a lobbyist. And he said he didn't, you know, have any news for us at this point for what he's uh, planning to do when he returns. But um, he was just back in the General Assembly for a little bit and the lawmakers were very excited to see him. So. All right. It's always there. good when your old colleagues get out of jail and come by for a visit. Hmm. He got he got so he got a round of applause for he did uh, showing uh, up in you the- know it was it was towards the end of the meeting and I and I was recording it from uh, down in the press room and all of a sudden you know I see a tweet from another reporter saying that Fletcher Hartzell was in the room and I was like what and I went back and listened and yeah he you know uh, Senator Brent Jackson who was chairing that committee meeting that day you know just said you know we have a special guest in the back and Senator Hartzell and made him stand up and everyone clapped for him. All right, Fletcher Hartzell in the hat for headliner of the week. Danielle Shemtob, who's your headliner of the week? So I'm going to pick two lawyers, uh, Laverne Berry and Stephen Miller. They're from New York, and they're the subjects of a new documentary that uh, screened for the first time in Durham on Sunday that I went to. And they are actually entertainment lawyers, but they came to North Carolina for the 2016 election to be election monitors. Um, and... The documentary pretty much follows their journey. They go, they went down to Fayetteville, um, sort of stationed at different polling sites and just um, had signs saying, you know, if you have issues voting, come talk to us. And it basically just depicted their interactions with various voters. Um, and it was really interesting to see kind of just the day-to-day operations. And there was one precinct where it was around 1,200 people showed up to vote, um, but only 598 of them were able to cast valid votes. Now, they did point out to me, you know, some of those were legitimate reasons and, you know, some they weren't sure about. So, you know, we'll see if they have a response to that or kind of what what happens from that. I've uh, definitely kind of heard from people on both sides of that issue. But, yeah, just interesting to kind of see both sides um, and just sort of see a different side of what happens on Election Day and, you know, what actually happens at the, the polling places. And they're basically arguing in the documentary that there's a lot of uh, uh, when people are questioned about their ID or when there's confusion mm-hmm. about the rules, I guess um, it discourages people from voting, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and there was a lot of, I mean, especially in 2016 with the voter ID law um, and then this big, uh, this was a big issue in the precinct they were in with a voter purging um, which was overturned just a couple days before the general election, I believe. So there was a lot of, they were saying that a lot of it was even just confusion, people not actually understanding the laws. Um, and what is the name of the uh, documentary in case people want to see that? It's called Capturing the Flag. They are still figuring out plans for future screenings and um, for its release. So we'll see what happens with that. Apparently they had originally intended to only make a 10-minute educational video, so they're operating a little out of their budget right now. But 
And yeah. uh, and so the lawyers who are spotlighted in that movie are Laverne Barry and Stephen Miller. Yes. Um, so they're in the hat for headliner of the week. Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? I am going uh, sort of in keeping with the Onion theme, but not quite, uh, with Beehives this week. Um, and that's because that was the subject of a committee meeting that was held on Thursday at the NC Zoo in Ashboro. I took the trip out there uh, kind of with the hopes that I would end up seeing uh, – legislators uh, feeding giraffes. That turned out not to be the case. They were in a conference center, uh, not terribly close to the zoo animals, uh, doing actual legislative business. But you can can feed the giraffes there, though. Yeah. You you pay $2, and you get to give them leaves, which is fun. Yeah. Um, So I'll have to go next time when there's not a meeting, and I don't get to expense the mileage. But anyway, uh, at the uh, meeting they were discussing, among other things, uh, a beehive grant program that was – started by this year with some state legislature uh, budget funding, about $25,000 worth of funding. Um, and these beehive grants uh, basically could be used to create new beehives. You could get a grant between uh, 200 I think, up to $200 per hive, uh, 2400 per person. Um, and it was basically on a first-come, first-served thing. You could uh, or get them uh, apply online. And these things went uh, faster than tickets to the musical Hamilton. In 11 minutes, uh, all of the beehive grant money had been spoken for because beekeepers are on it and they really wanted to get some of that beehive grant money so uh, yeah get it get that legislative honey pot of actual honey um (laughs) a total of 15 recipients uh and i guess there's some talk that they could uh expand that in the future uh there are also some uh other uh bee related presentations uh the bee coopers association is trying to get a 2.3 million dollar apiculture field laboratory at nc state that they want the legislature to fund uh we also heard about uh colony collapse uh, disorder uh, as a result of the NC State uh, professor who is presenting his work, uh, which he noted some low-priority problems uh, that are not causing problems to bees, and his slide included uh, cell phones, rapture, terrorist, and Soviet plots. Uh, I was starting to fall asleep at that meeting, and then I saw on the PowerPoint screen Soviet plots and rapture, and it uh, woke me right back up. So uh, all that is to say beehive grants in my pick this week for a headliner. So the bees are not being raptured. Not they're raptured. Not, not, it's not the rapture yeah. for bees. Okay. You don't have to worry. What? If you get your beehive grant, they will not be raptured. If <laughs> they die, it's probably your fault. Why are they dying? Uh, they don't know. It could be anywhere. Um, I think the uh, pesticides, food supply, climate, and pathogens are all things that the NC State professor who spoke to legislators is uh, in the process of studying, but there's been no definitive conclusions really yet. Okay. Trying to figure out that mystery, but they, are, they have ruled out the, the rapture and Soviet plots. Um, all right, so I forget why uh, the original reason for yeah, that. But beehives. The, <laughs> because of the grant program. <laughs> that went to some strange places. So um, uh, beehives are in the hat for headliner of the week uh, because of the um, very fast and tech-savvy beekeepers. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner of the week? Um, I guess I have a more traditional headliner. Um, I'm going with uh, Paul Ryan. Uh who, as people probably know, just resigned as the Speaker of the House. Uh, But that's not exactly why he's my choice for headliner. Um, I'm choosing him because basically his resignation has thrust several uh, North Carolina Republican congressmen into the spotlight uh, with kind of uh, internal GOP power struggle that's going on to, uh, you know, figure out who's going to fill the void. Uh, When he's gone, you have uh, Mark Meadows from out in Asheville who leads the uh, pretty hardline Freedom Caucus, which has long been pretty critical of uh, Ryan's leadership as speaker and has wanted, uh, you know, someone, uh, you know, who's going to, you know, be a little more uh, intense and, you know, along their line of thinking. Um, And although he said that he doesn't want the speakership for himself, uh, but there's around... 
three dozen members of Congress who are in that Freedom Caucus that he leads. And so obviously, um, you know, if, if he doesn't end up actually running for the speaker uh, role, he could still uh, wield a lot of influence in picking who ultimately gets it. Um, and on the more establishment side, uh, Patrick McHenry, uh, also from out in Western North Carolina, has been kind of a, a dark horse, uh, uh, you know, rising star among the Republican Party uh and I think he's uh, currently fourth in line in the leadership. So it would be a little surprising if he was chosen as speaker immediately. There, you know, there are a few people who are still above him in line, but uh, he is climbing the ranks, and uh, this is, you know, just kind of uh, putting him uh, more, more in leadership now. Andy is actually showing me a tweet as I am talking uh, that says Paul Ryan wants to have Kevin McCarthy from California as his successor. Um, who is one of the more establishment people, uh, which would uh, be good news for Patrick McHenry if that happened, because uh, I, I would assume that they are allies, or at least on the same side of the, the GOP. So we'll see. And then you also had uh, Walter Jones from out in East North, Eastern North Carolina come out, and uh, we wrote a story uh, on, the, on his comments. He was blasting this program that I never knew about that gives people, even after they retire from Congress, if they're the speaker, they get a ton of money to just kind of play with uh, in the five years after they leave office. They get to hire several super highly paid staffers with six-figure salaries. They get uh, you know, free office space, and they get to buy a bunch of fancy furniture and do all this stuff. Um, it you know, it'd be a couple million dollars. So uh, Walter Jones was not very happy about that, and uh, we had an article uh, with him expressing uh, why he felt like that program should be done away with. So people can go find that on our website, uh, see more on his complaints there. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then we've, he's had uh, – was kind of been a um, – one of Walter Jones's issues. We've, we've written about uh, the, this in the past that he's wanted to get rid of this post-speaker's office, and it kind of – it had been in the spotlight at one point um, because of its use by um, Denny Hastert, um, who, of course, was involved in scandal uh, not very long ago at all. Um, so uh, – and he had been using some money from the post-speaker's office. Um, so Paul Ryan is in the hat for headliner of the week. Andy Spay, who's your headliner? I'm going to go with farmers, uh, more specifically North Carolina farmers, uh, for two reasons. One, um, well, I, I should say just because of the, the pickle they're in. Um, they, uh, this week we reported that, you know, obviously we're in this uh, escalating trade war with China, uh, and tariffs were placed on pork products, tobacco products, uh, as well as what, soy? Soy. Uh, anyway, all huge exports uh, for North Carolina's farmers, um, big cash crops. Uh, and so uh, they face that, uh, those tariffs, and, you know, this was, this is sort of a national thing, international thing, if you will. Uh, Trump supported, uh, Trump in turn put, you know, uh, tariffs on Chinese products. Uh, and we have a story this week that says North Car- many North Carolina farmers still support Trump. Uh, because they view him as uh, fiscally conservative. But what will be interesting in North Carolina moving forward is how uh, legislative Republicans uh, message themselves and separate themselves from uh, these tariffs. Because, you know, this is the party that always, always campaigns on low taxes, low regulation. And North Carolina, um, at least, you know, in our legislature, they've done that effectively. They've sort of followed through on lowering taxes, corporate taxes. Um, I should be honest and say, I, I don't know how, what the subsidies are, how much they're getting giving for farmers, but 
in general, you know, Republicans in North Carolina have lived up to the party's mantra. Well, with with Trump and now uh, at the top, you know, representing national Republicans and uh, having these tariffs go into place, uh, it sort of leaves an opening for Democrats to come in and uh, sort of, you know, cast Trump onto uh, North Carolina's Republicans. And, you know, and so it's odd and interesting that something that the White House does might go against the party's longtime thinking and, uh, I don't know, leave leave farmers and leave uh, Republicans here in an awkward position where they're going to have to defend the president but also defend, you know, low regulation and low taxes. How are, it'll, I'm very curious to see how they do that. Mm-hmm. And we saw the beginnings of that uh, uh, just recently, and Will covered the uh, Democrats holding a press conference to say that uh, Trump and Republicans aren't good for rural North Carolina, um, which is interesting because they've sort of, um, of course, focused a lot of their efforts on the suburbs and urban areas, um, but they seem to be focusing on this as maybe a way to make inroads in, in rural North Carolina, even though, Will, as you reported, a lot, you know, a lot of the farmers uh, fit the demographics of the Trump voter. They do, uh, and yeah. as the, you know, I obviously asked the Republican Party for, you know, their thoughts on, you know, Democrats' plan to kind of use these tariffs as a talking point to try and win over rural voters and, uh, you know, heard a, a kind of a snarky response from the Republicans say, well, it's about time the Democrats focused on rural North Carolina and quickly pivoted the subject to uh, the whole issues with the uh, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and some of the, the funds with Cooper's office surrounding that and didn't really want to talk about the tariffs too much beyond just saying that tariffs are uh, part of MAGA and America First and, you know, they support Trump. So can I add, can I add too, that as interested as I am in saying how uh, – Republicans message, uh, you know, separate themselves from tariff or embrace tariffs while also embracing trying to tout low taxes and regulations. It'll be interesting to see how Democrats message out there. Are they going to just, you know, is their main pitch going to be to farmers say, well, uh, well, Trump's bad. And so you should vote for us. Uh, they might they might not think Trump is bad. They may still be, you know, generally fans, but not a fan of what he's doing. What uh, what policies? What are they? what message are they going to give? What what do they have to offer uh, these farmers of substance other than um, rhetoric? That'll be interesting to see, too. All right. Uh, farmers in the hat for headliner of the week, along with Paul Ryan, Laverne Berry, and Stephen Miller, Fletcher Hartzell, and Beehives. Uh, we got a couple of agricultural choices for uh, – Domecast. So definitely have to uh, go with one of those. Um, I am going to go with Andy's choice of farmers. I think that is – it does raise some interesting questions here, um, sort of a uh, uh, creates a new political dynamic with Trump uh, uh, starting what, what looks like uh, the beginnings of a trade war. Um, and, you know, there was uh, some interesting comments in the in our colleague Scott Bolajak's piece on um, the farmers uh, in Johnston County. And basically they were saying – well, we don't really think this is going to happen. Um, you know, we think this is all going to be negotiated, and um, China is not going to really come down with these tariffs in the end. Uh, so, um, you know, depending on what actually does happen, um, we'll see if they change their tune. Uh, so, farmers are our headliner of the week this week, and uh, that's it for Domecast. Uh, for Lauren Horsch, Danielle Shemtob, Colin Campbell, Will Doran, and Andy Spay, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.